Welcome to Soundprint. I'm Lisa Simeone. Nuns are funny. As you may know, they sing and fly, fly and sing, at least on the TV. And of course, it's really funny when Whoopi Goldberg dresses up like a nun. Also, they are mean and scary. If you don't know that 8 times 3 equals 24, they will smack you with a ruler. And finally, they are peaceful, serene, and angelic saints on earth. That just about wraps it up, I think. I can tell you one thing about nuns that is true. That is, there are fewer and fewer of them each day in America. All told, there are about 600 religious women's communities, and well over half of them contain fewer than 100 women, and these women are getting older. The median age of American nuns is 71, and less than 1% of them are under 30. Most of them have no pension plans. There is nobody to take care of them. It is estimated that if all the orders sold off all their assets, they would still need $2.8 billion just to take care of their retirement needs. Our story today is called The Graying of the Convent. It's not just a story about statistics. Producer Mary Beth Kirshner is going to take us to a convent to visit an order called the Senecals of North America. It is in Chicago, and as you will hear, this is a very personal story about real people. I uh, took piano lessons in a convent when I was eight years old and have vivid memories of tiptoeing down this long, narrow, reverberant hallway. My music books clutched tightly to me, trying not to look like I was peeking in rooms. This convent was the quietest place I'd ever been, yet somehow you never felt alone. The statues of saints, paintings of the Virgin Mary were always watching. They knew when you hadn't practiced. I never saw much of the convent and never knew much about the sisters who taught me, although I was practically raised by nuns in Catholic schools all through high school. I even went to a Catholic preschool. Somehow this journey as an adult back to the convent felt almost as if I was chronicling the stories of my own history, like taping oral histories with my grandparents. Tell me what you were like when you were young. Why did you make the choices you did? Somehow it didn't matter that I'd never met these particular women. They represented a part of my upbringing that was slowly disappearing. Quite frankly, I wasn't sure what I would discover. Looking back, I never imagined the depth of what I'd come to understand in only one week. My first day in the convent began on, of all days, Easter Sunday, with a mass in celebration of the most holy of holy days. The chapel was filled with the fragrance of lilies and the sweet voices of sisters. Little did I know how I'd spend the afternoon. There's a high pump foul. Can't make the play, and he's back. After Mass over Easter brunch, I met Sister Celine Schulte, an avid baseball fan. She told me there was a game that day between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Chicago Cubs, her two favorite teams, and invited me to join her as she watched the game on TV. one nothing Cubs were in the second. I imagine Ozzy Smith is playing. You know, he's been sick. He really is a super, super player. You know, I mean, I don't care what anybody says. 
you really miss Ozzy when he's not in the game. At the end of two, Cubs lead one nothing. I suppose Sister Celine was the best introduction possible to my shedding any preconceived notions about convent life or the types of sisters I might meet. I modeled for a soap company 50-some years ago, you understand. And I did model for um, Timken ball bearings at one time. (laughs) Well, I was in the theater for about a year with St. Dennis, this is my teacher and she was a very famous dancer she said, you're, you're not much until you've been in vaudeville you're, just, you're not worth your salt so I thought, well I better get a job in vaudeville, which I did so I got with the Rockettes, I was a showgirl, not a dancer and strutted around the stage and I didn't tell anybody I was entering I told them while I was going to New York for a vacation because I thought, well, maybe if I get there, I'll decide to come home so they won't know the difference anyhow. Now, what did your friends say when you first went in? Oh, they were shocked. They were shocked. Harriet, of all people, you're, you're a happy-go-lucky person. Why, why do you want to go and shut yourself up in a convent? They'll never let you out. <laughs> you know, I always imagine most sisters believed they were born to enter the convent. Stories of boyfriends or vaudeville seemed impossible. You know, I dated a lot. Every time it got too close, then I broke it off, because I knew that I'd never be able to go through with it. In the back of my mind, I always knew I'd end up being a nun. But I haven't regretted one single day of it. The avenues that I have pursued, I'm sure I wouldn't have done had I not become a religious. There were no limits set on what I wanted to learn and try and test. Now it's a strange anomaly, but it's true. It was true for many women. The convent of all places provided a setting in which they could study, teach, emerge as leaders. Sister Irene Dugan has taught prayer and spirituality all over the world. Before we talked, I don't think she'd ever stop to figure out how many people she'd worked with over the years. She sat quietly for a moment when I asked her if she could estimate a number and softly guessed, oh, at least 50,000. Remarkable for anyone, especially an 82-year-old woman who's worked most of her life within convent walls. If I gave you a million dollars, you would quick sit down and figure out what you do with it, right? When was the last time you sat down and figured out, I have this precious gift of life. What am I doing with it? What am I going to do with it? What am I doing with this precious life? Most of Sister Dugan's teachings revolve around the interior life, development of self, Her definition of holy is someone who is complete. Whole is holy. Retreats are the main vehicle for her teaching. She and the other sisters, from an order called the Cynical, run retreats which provide an escape from the stresses of everyday living. They're located in the heart of Chicago's Lincoln Park, what's now considered a yuppie neighborhood, where few people even know that they have Catholic sisters for neighbors. 
No, in fact, we've often said, well, I, I wonder figured, what this place is I figured like. it had something to do with church. It surprised me that this would be in this extremely busy and congested location. Uh, but, but they do have a beautiful garden on the side, and uh, um, I can see why something like this would be necessary in the city. They bring in working women for seminars, offer classes in Buddhist meditation, host meetings for sisters who are adult children of alcoholics. There was a workshop for homiletics, a class on Jungian analysis of fairy tales, even a meeting of victims of child abuse. All of this happened during the one week I was there, which, by the way, they said, was rather quiet because of the Easter holiday. Several of the sisters commented that it was too bad I hadn't come during a busier time. Now contrast that with this. Thirty years ago, these sisters were not permitted to leave the grounds. They made their own clothes. There were no newspapers or television sets. Doctors came to the convent to care for the sick. Sisters weren't even allowed to go home at the death of a loved one. I was there only from March to May when my dad died suddenly. He never came back to see me. I was heartbroken. I wanted to go home. But those days you didn't go home. If you went home, you never went back to the convent. They wouldn't let you come back, you know. So you couldn't go home so for your I could not funeral. go to my father's funeral. I didn't want to. They, they said, you can go. And I cried for days, for weeks. I was so crushed. That was my first death in the family. Then on July, my mother and my brother, came, my sister came with Mike nice dodge my car you know and my brother says get behind the wheel and I said yeah I'd love to get behind the wheel so I drove around he says drive right out of the property he says you know to me I said oh no see I was already I says no they will never let me come back and I went I still want to try you know sister Harriet Dietz was engaged for six months before she entered her fiance was killed in a hunting accident by a stray bullet. Broken-hearted, she entered the cynical life, yet she claims this tragic circumstance is what led her to the life she was destined to lead. Back when she entered, there weren't many other choices for a Catholic woman. Marriage, of course, was one. Nursing, teaching, secretarial work. Women were entering this cloistered-like living at the cynical in groups of a hundred or more at a time. It was a misnomer to call us semi-cloistered. It really meant that we didn't go out to see people, they came to us. The world came to us. We knew more about what was going on than the sisters who were teaching in the schools because we were hearing everything. You name it, we heard it. It was pretty clear that Sister Dugan had heard it all. One of my fondest memories of my week in the convent is having dinner alone with her. I offered to go out to one of the gourmet food shops in the neighborhood and bring back some food, anything she wanted. She said anything would be fine, just bring some Italian bread and a good red wine. My tape recorder was off for most of the conversation, where we talked about celibacy, lesbianism. It was clear that nothing was too bold to ask. How would you compare your experience to a priestly experience? Are the motivations any different? motivations are the same and I do the same kind of work that 
priests do, but better. And uh, the priests have a much freer existence. They would go, let's say, and give a weekend retreat. Let's say, come to our house. They would go home after being here and maybe have two or three days off. We keep right on working. We have to. We have to maintain ourselves. Now, the diocesan priests can have a condo downtown, a house in Florida, because they don't have a vow of poverty. And they have it soft. Parishioners give them cars. Do you ever go into a rectory and see their liquor closet? Not uh, $2 liquor. Chivas. You know, black label. People might be surprised to find out that you were a Catholic nun. Right. I'm a woman, first. I'm a human, second. The two go together. And then I'm a Christian. Do you think many sisters would say that? No. That's what I'm teaching. That's what I'm here for. Today, Irene Dugan is in a wheelchair, to which she's been confined for the last few years. Bum knees, she explains, which ironically gave out from too much kneeling. Although intellectually active as ever, she recently received an honorary doctorate from Loyola University, where she still teaches. Sister Dugan's physical limitations have forced her to live on a floor of the convent designated for infirmed sisters. Are you okay, Bertha? Yeah. You must be careful not to try to stand, because you'll hurt yourself. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. And you're getting therapy now, mm. so you'll become stronger and be able to sure. walk up and down, up and down again. Yeah. But not yet. Not yet. Not no. yet. Mm-mm. No. No. And you're much prettier without that dumb veil. <laughs> much prettier. It's so funny. Most days, yeah. Sister Bertha no, sits in the community room watching right television in house dress, slippers, and occasionally her veil. Only a handful of these sisters still wear veils. Most shed the old habit 20 years ago. It was a long, flowing black dress, yards of material, and over that we wore a purple cape, which was just below the waist, and a silver cross, a large silver cross, on a black grosgrain ribbon. Our necks were free, thank God. <laughs> and uh, I still long, remember long a nun doll I had large. as a child. Actually, it was a large baby doll dressed in a sister's habit. I think one of my aunts had wanted it at a church bazaar. She had a long black dress and veil with the doll's forehead and neck wrapped in a white, stiff fabric. The first thing I did upon bringing the doll home was take off her habit. Just as I suspected, the nun doll had no hair. That next day at school, my preschool teacher, a nun with a habit much like my dolls, asked for questions at the end of our lessons, at which time I raised my hand and asked what was most on my mind. Did she have any hair? She looked quite stunned. I began to explain my discovery with my nun doll when she proceeded to remove her veil. There she stood with a full head of not just ordinary hair, shocking red hair, short and carrot red. 
My classmates and I all gasped at the sight. Later that afternoon, I raced home, pulled out my red magic marker, and drew hair on the head of my nun doll. You know, the day I realized that nuns had red hair was quite a turning point for me. I knew then that most anything was possible. I wished I had the picture that I have. I'm riding the bicycle with it. Oh, and you're uh, kidding. Yeah, down in Houston. Tell me about it. Houston, <laughs> Texas, we had a, we were out like on a plantation. And uh, we used to have a skirt underneath that we could pin up. You know, we could pin our habit skirt up, and then we had another skirt that hung all the way down to the, almost the floor, you know. And um, I would ride this bicycle about a mile to get the mail. And uh, there was um, a sort of a tr bunch of trees in the road there. And whenever we, you'd get to that spot, the wind would circle around there. So I would get caught in the... In the um, you know, you get caught in that chain, and you had to sit there and wait till some car came along. <laughs> and they had to cut get, me out. Because your habit would get stuck in the it spokes get, of the bike? Yeah. Oh, my God. And they'd have to take a scissors or a knife. <laughs> the guys would have to take a knife and cut my petticoat, you know, to get me out of it. <laughs> but, uh, so you didn't, now and you I, what I'm telling you this is you didn't let that habit bother you. One of the major misconceptions about religious life is that ours is a calm, peaceful, no difficulties, no crises. It's prayerful and we're wonderful saints and we pray all the time and, and, and we just live paradise on earth. And it's so far from the truth. To be surprised that we would lose our temper or have a mood is, is so outlandish. We're entitled. We're supposed to be some angelic other or thing that flits around and, and just gives all the time. And it's so unreal. Forty diverse women live together in this house, ages 36 to 96. Most are over 70. I wanted to spend time in particular with Sister Katie Martin, who is the oldest sister in the house. Irene Dugan had mentioned her in passing during one of our conversations as a dear friend. Katie is the only person who still calls Irene, Judy, her family's name for her. As young sisters, they worked closely together with children, ran retreats, even wrote poetry together. Sister Katie is extremely weak and hard of hearing. I'm too sleepy. You're too sleepy. Could I come tomorrow? Tomorrow? I sat on the arm of her easy chair with my face resting next to hers while we talked. I just want to sleep. That's all I want to do. Yeah. Is to sleep. And I do it morning, noon, and night. Well. It does make you very bright to sleep so much. It's not good. Do you have time to pray when you're awake? Well, I have time, but I don't seem to do it. I don't seem to know how to pray anymore. I don't know if I ever did, but I, I don't seem to know how now. Could you teach me? Could I teach you? Yes, you could, I bet you. I bet you could. 
How could I ever presume to teach you? You could. You could. You could. You've spent your whole life teaching other people how to pray. I know, but it's not much good. I don't think it helps much. Could I teach her to pray? I went back to see Sister Dugan with thoughts of Katie most on my mind. I spent a little time with Kate yesterday. Did you? Oh, good. We were talking, and she was telling me how tired she was, that she was tired all the time. And she said, I'm so tired, I can't even pray. I don't even know how to pray. That's what happens at the end. That's... If you haven't prayed all your life, and I'm not saying Katie didn't, you don't pray at the end. Then she said to me, I'm not sure I ever knew how. That scares me to death. I think it's been very hard for me to look at her in the state she's in and uh, to uh, make an effort to communicate with her. I think I've been avoiding it because it's very painful. And, uh, but I know it's in me that I have to go there, and I will, when it's the appropriate moment. Regardless of how much of your life is spent in prayer, there is no lifelong answer. All our journey is movement toward completeness, whole. That's what we mean by saying a person is holy. The person is complete, is holy. And when the completeness is achieved, they don't have to hang around here anymore. They go home. Yes, just us two together. Come a little closer. Can you? Come closer to me. Don't you remember me, Judy Dugan? Do you pray a lot, Kate? What? Do you pray a lot? No, I can't seem to pray much. Why? I, I don't know. I just tell you, just everything I do is a prayer, please. That's what it is. It is. I can't do any better than that. Oh, that's wonderful that you do that. And he understands. That's right. Nobody else does, but he does. Yes, right. We think we do, but we don't. Yes. That's very important, Kate. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. Because then that means we're praying together. Okay, yes. We did pray a lot together. Yes, we prayed a lot. And we, to, we, pray, and we played a lot, and, too. And we fought a lot. It was wonderful, wasn't it, Kate? Those were happy days, weren't they? Yes. Now, you need to remember those happy days. Yes, I do. I do. You don't always remember them, do you? 
I forget the unhappy ones. Well, that's good. What do you want most now? What? What do you want most now? What bothers me most now? No, what do you want most now? Either one. What bothers you or I what do you... want to die. You want to die? I want to die unafraid and full of love. Oh, and you're but afraid, huh? But I'm afraid I'm going to be afraid. Oh, no, you're not going to be afraid. I'm not going to let you be afraid. We don't know what it's like, you know. Oh, it's going to be beautiful, Kate. Didn't you know that? Dying is nice. Well, maybe what you need to ask is to pray for, to die quickly. Dead is nice, but dying die quickly, is... die quickly. That's what you need. But it's going to be beautiful. And, and you will die with, with security. You're remarkable. You're remarkable. You take things so beautifully. I don't take things beautifully. Why, Kate? Why? Why don't you? I don't know. Oh. I guess I'm afraid. I think you're afraid too. But but you said you want to go to love, and what was the other thing? Love and peace, no fear. That's what we have to ask every day. Yes. I'll do it with you, every day. Every day. All right? Yes. Okay. Thank you, dear. You're welcome, love. is the most precious gift we have. It's the only gift. And we're going to have it forever. We always stop. Nobody talks about death anymore. They say, passing on, gee, whatever. But death is a doorway to life and fullness. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. It's an open door. Come, visit, see. We have infinite capacity, infinite ability to love, to know, to become. We never know enough. We never love enough. We love 10 people. We can love 20 more. There's an infinite quality about us. That's our spirit. This is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Senecals. Our show today was produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. The associate producer was Wesley Weisberg. The Graying of the Convent is a special co-production between Soundprint and WBEZ-FM in Chicago. Special thanks to Sister Katie McHugh and Father Tim O'Connell.
Soundprint is produced by Moira Rankin. Our associate producer is Debbie Morris. Technical director is Anna Maria De Freitas. Our production assistant is Debbie Nachman. Soundprint's executive producer is Bill Seemering. I'm Lisa Simeone. Please write us with your ideas or suggestions at Soundprint, 2216 North Charles Street, Baltimore, Maryland, 21218. Cassettes are $10. Soundprint is produced by the Johns Hopkins University with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is the American Public Radio Network.